as is my custom, I'm reading out of the New King James Version, Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through the end of the chapter. God's Word says, Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, in honor giving preference to one another, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your heart on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not keep, or I'm sorry, do not overcome evil, but overcome evil with good. Well, this morning, we are going to continue again in 1 Corinthians 7. We have spent four weeks here considering the main thrust of this passage, which has been a theology of singleness in terms of our earthly relationships. And that is the main thrust of this passage, although in the Christian community you wouldn't think it. In my own Bible it says principles of marriage as the man-made heading for this whole chapter. And we have found that throughout it has been Paul's uh, task to lay before us a very powerful and persuasive argument for why it is best for singleness to be the state of believers how it is that we can serve the Lord in that state, not less but more, how it is that we can be an asset to the church and not a liability, as it is often presented in our day, that it is not a disease that needs to be corrected, but rather a commitment that needs to be honored. We now move forward into the interruptions in this argument of Paul's. And here in these three interruptions that we have in this chapter, where Paul takes our attentions back to the marital state, that we find some instruction that we want to address. And while... I'm not going to be addressing fatherhood particularly since that we dealt with last week. And if you missed last week, dads, that was your message. I'm sorry I got my timing off, but uh, I'm not really sorry, actually. It just happens. 
Maybe it was the rest of the world's timing was off. I was right on. But we want to understand today, and hopefully we already know this, and I'm just rehearsing something before you that you are very familiar with, but hopefully this morning we understand that one of the key elements, and I would say maybe even the key element relationally of being a good father is to be an even better husband. That is what your children need more than anything else from you is that you honor, cherish, and care for their mom. And so today as we look into the condition called marriage, that commitment that we make within our society, we are going to see it as a benefit to the family and God's design there as a benefit to the individuals involved given their weaknesses. And then we're going to look at some commands which are going to startle us in their demands. Before we do so, let's go, Lord, in prayer together this morning. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us, for your word before us, your spirit within us. Lord, we do pray again that you, we might work in this hour, in this time, as we spend time in your word and look into its truth, that we might be willing to bring it into our very lives without question. Now, we might be willing to implement it consistently throughout our lives. Lord, we do pray that you might find us as a body of saints, desiring earnestly to conform ourselves to you. And Lord, we know we will fail in that respect. Help us to be ready as the saints of old to repent and to confess that sin before you. That we might strive with greater diligence each day to please you in our lives and in the relationships that we have. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, We've already touched on several of these passages, and I know that we have spent four weeks talking about singleness. We are not going to spend four weeks talking about marriage because that's not what this chapter is really about. And so we're only going to take one, maybe two weeks if I get tangled up in a couple of things this morning. I hope I don't, but it could happen. Um, some issues that get, are drawn out from the passages before us. But we have a very simple and powerful presentation of marriage and it is a little more radical than most uh, modern christians want to uh, believe and want to accept in fact as i go through my commentaries and my commentaries are very commentators are very conservative men um, they are not neo-evangelicals they are they are right down the line pretty much you would say they are uh, conservative evangelicals at, at worst um, and so when i talk about my 
commentators. I'm not talking about the, the liberals way out on the left end of Christianity, but really what is considered mainstream in too many churches today. We are buying into a philosophy that is generated more from our experience and our sensitivities to one another instead of truth. And there comes a point in the church where we must take a stand on truth and not total disregard for the sensitivities of others and their experience, but rather we take those into account and we mold those experiences to truth, not the other way around. Because as soon as we start trying to mold truth to experiences, we have violated truth and it no longer is. It becomes relativism, which then can be created by anyone. And whether we have good intentions with regards to that or not, it is a dangerous thing when we start down that road. And so we're going to look into the Scriptures today, and particularly one area, but we have three that are addressed here in the chapter. And we're going to handle them in order, but it is the middle one that we're going to, that's going to garner much of our attention today, I believe. Uh, we come to an attitude about marriage, and I want to share with you some things that I've encountered along the way, which tells me that what the commentators are saying is being heard and applied by the church. That is the error, the, the mishandling of this passage and these passages um, on marriage in general are largely uh, listened to and the obvious statements that they make are largely ignored. And so we are always willing to come to the Bible, it's called eisegesis, and we come to the Bible with what we want to believe. Here's what I've, decisions I've had to make in my life, and now I'm going to try to justify it by coming to the Bible um, with the attitude that it will be justified as I get there. And that I will make it okay for me to have done what I've done or to do what I'm about to do. I'm going to make it okay, and I can go to God's Word and, and corrupt it, really, to enable that to occur. This is called eisegesis. What we practice, what I try to practice, is called exegesis. That is, we take meaning out of the text. We don't put meaning into it. We simply say that the Bible says what it says. It means what it says. And it is not full of trickery. It is a revelation. It is to show us, not to hide from us, God's will. What we do with that knowledge, then, is firmly upon our shoulders and we will give a reckoning to the one true and living God for how we handle His Word. And ignorance will not be any excuse on that day. And so don't just turn off your hearing today and say, I didn't know what He was talking about. It was over my head. It is not over your head, I assure you. What it may be over is your heart. And if we come to God's Word in pride saying that I am unwilling to let it convict me, then that is the issue. Not your hearing, but your heart. And so we come to this passage, and let's look at it very carefully. In the middle part, like I said, we're going to spend more time on. Part one, we come to right away. Not right away, it's the second thing. Uh, verse one tells us that it's not good for a man to touch a woman. Or, I'm sorry, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Got my negatives added, that extra negative, which is bad news. We come to verse 2 and it says, Nevertheless, and so we have an exception to the rule. We have the rule laid out, now we have the exception. 
in the exception to the rule is presented to us not as a superior position, but as a fallback position. The superior position is that we are able to go our, the course of our life without any sexual encounters at all, that we can do that. God has instilled with us the capacity to do this. God does not command us or instruct us or guide us into a truth that we are not capable of accomplishing. But... Um, because there is within man the propensity to do evil, to sin, rather than to get engaged in sexual sin, God says there is an alternative. Um, that alternative is inclusive for the church. He tells us later on it is not sin to do the alternative. And that alternative is to be married. And that as an outworking of that appetite of man, let him have his own wife. To guard against sexual immorality, that is one of the benefits or the purposes of marriage, is to guard against corruptness in the sexual area of mankind. And that is God's design. And thus we are told that if this is an area of concern, that you should have your own wife. And each woman should have her own husband. And that not only is that sufficient, it's not sufficient just to have that those vows given and that commitment made, but it must be fulfilled. That is, it must be consummated and not just on a singular occasion or just at your whim or will, but rather it should be done on a regular basis because of the, this, this, this specific purpose is to guard from sexual immorality. And therefore, all of who I am is given over to the needs of that area of that one to whom I've given myself. And so for the wife, it is to her husband, and to the husband, to her wife. And the Bible describes us that you're not your own anymore. Just as we are not our own because we are bought with a price, and therefore we are God's and we are there to please God, so when you enter into this kind of relationship called marriage, you are not your own anymore on another level that your body physically belongs to that one that you married, your spouse. And thus it is not about whether I feel up to it or whether I want this physical relationship with my spouse, but rather it is their choice. And thus the authority it describes here is no longer over my own body because I have given my body to this other person. And now they have authority over this flesh. And this is the secret, if you will. Everybody wants to know and, and pick up the magazines, the secret to great sex. Okay, it's all over the place. Here's the secret. Okay, all you singles, just close your eyes, block it out. Okay, here's the secret. is submitting yourself to the other one in love. That you recognize they have authority over you have granted them in the marriage vows authority over your flesh. That is that you're going to be selfless in this area. And that first principle Paul simply lays forward there is that um, once you enter into that contract, into that relationship, that you have a responsibility to, uh, in modern terms, to keep that romance alive. How? By reminding yourself that you are no longer seeking your own things anymore. That I am seeking what satisfies 
my spouse. It is that person that now has that kind of authority over my life. And, and this is kind of weird to talk about a little bit because we talk a lot about dads or husbands that you're the authority in the home. Absolutely. Okay? But in that role, as the leader of the home, there is one area that Bible specifically says that your wife has authority over you. It is not over the cooking. It is not over the finances. It is not over the direction generally of your family. It is not over the raising of the children. None of those areas does the Bible apply that. But there is one area, and it is this one, in terms of your physical relationship one with the another. And so, a very practical area we begin right off with in marriage. We have just finished in the last chapter. I know that was like over a month ago that we studied this. We just looked at the last chapter that talked about that once you have joined yourself to another physically, you are one flesh before God. Now, in that context, in chapter 6, is referring to a harlot, an, an illicit sexual encounter that God says, you know, you made yourself one with her. What were you thinking? Don't you recognize what God, the, the importance that God places upon that physical act, that it is not just a, a random expression of animalistic desire, but it is to be a substantive thing uh, to express in a beautiful manner a mutual commitment one to another. That is a reflection of the intimacy in our spirit that we can have with God. That we have this intimacy in the flesh with another. And so we don't share that kind of intimacy with strangers, but rather with one that we have already entered into a full, committed relationship with. And so we reserve it till that day, even as the intimacy we have with God is reserved until we come into a right contract, a covenant with Him. Then, having this covenant relationship with God, we are given the intimacy of God in us, Holy Spirit. It is not the other way around. Sorry, Calvin. The Spirit doesn't come into us to save us so that we can be in a covenant relationship with God. But rather, He comes in as the guarantee, the inheritance, the intimacy that we have because we have entered into this relationship with God by faith, trusting in Him. Then comes the intimacy. And so in our marriage, the intimacy in the flesh comes when we have in our flesh made this, this covenant relationship with one another. It is of greater importance for it is prior. But it does not negate the importance of the second. And so the physical consummation of that relationship is also important. In fact, we are given a command to not avoid it. Is that right? That's a negative kind of thing. But to engage ourselves in that physical act in our married relationships. says, do not deprive one another except with consent. That is that we are both agree to this and only for a time or a season for a specific period of time and only for these purposes to give ourselves to fasting and prayer. So we have very limited room to move here, don't we? Husbands and wives. We have a very, I mean, only for, if we both agree only for a specific period of time and only for fasting and prayer. That's about it. If I don't fit those three criteria, I can't deny my spouse anywhere, anytime. 
So it says, and then as soon as you finish this period of time, it says, uh, come back together, join together again. Why? So that there is no temptation because of your lack of self-control. He's already started off this portion talking about that's why you got married to begin with, remember? Because you couldn't handle being single. So now that you are married, don't tempt it. Give yourselves one to another freely, willingly, selflessly. For that is what it means to make yourself a man's wife. That is what it means to make yourself a woman's husband. Is say, I am yours in this flesh. And let me remind you that it is in this flesh that you are one. Now, is this the only reason that God instituted the sexual act? No. Obviously, Malachi tells us that one of the reasons he made you one flesh was that so he could have godly offspring. And so we are warned there in Malachi that in this area, a man should cherish his, the wife of his youth. That is, that first wife. In a context where men had multiple wives, um, the Bible specifically made this command for the first wife the wife of your youth, that you do not deal treacherously with her, is what Malachi says. Don't you dare in your heart start to have any view towards her that is of a negative nature that would betray the relationship that you create, that you commit treason. Is literally the word there, that you are treacherous toward the relationship, the covenant you've made with her. And so you bind yourself up to her and, and it is her desire that, that is Im, important to you but also compelling to you that this is hers. And she has a right to that because I have granted that in a marital act and vice versa. And we see that whenever that was taken away, whenever one spouse deprived the other of it and created this treacherous time that God sent a judgment upon His people. That when that became the norm, God's people came under judgment. You might say, does that become the norm among God's people? Yes, it had. Hence, that's why it was in Malachi. A prophet saying, listen, if you don't get this, and it wasn't just normal for the really bad Israelites, it was normal for the priests who were dealing treacherously with their wives. It had penetrated all of the society, and God says, for this reason, I'm going to judge you. And so, yes, we have this very practical area in the relationship of husband and wife that that we engage ourselves in this act of love as an act of submission to one another, as a humbling of ourselves and a recognition that we have invested in the other person rights over our flesh. Now, is this the only secret to good marriage? No, but it is not one that is lost on God. We often think that God is some kind of 
uh, fun-hating character that is looking over our shoulders and never wanting us to crack a smile. Um, by the way, that God's name is Allah. And that is their God. But rather, God has designed this to be enjoyed when done in a godly manner. That is, in a selfless manner. And sin has destroyed that. That what was once totally selfless became selfish and became perverted. And when we renew God's instructions in this area, we find it to be one that's going to fill our relationship and not be perverted or destructive to it. We then come to a second principle here in our passage. First principle, if you're going to be married, you're going to consummate that marriage, you're going to do it frequently, you're going to do it often, you're going to do it at the bequest of your spouse and to their enjoyment. Number two, principle of marriage is a very strong one here in the passage. And it gives us some clear instruction about how God views marriage in general. And it begins in verse 10. It says, now to the married, I have some things to say on the side here. Um, and it has to do with um, your relationships within uh, mixed marriages. And by that, I mean with a believer and an unbeliever. But he gives this counsel in verses 10 and following. Let's read it. Now to the married, I command, yet not I, but the Lord. A wife is not to depart from her husband. But even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. But to the rest, I, not the Lord, say if a brother, any brother has a wife who does not believe and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. But if the unbeliever departs, let him not let him depart. If a brother or a sister is not a brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know a wife whether you will save your husband, or how do you know a husband whether you will save your wife? Now, we're going to back up a couple steps. We're going to take a start at this. We may not finish it. I may have to stretch this into next week. But we want to take some background into this. First of all, here's a common attitude that I've encountered. One is, is that marriage, prior to belief in Jesus Christ, that is, the marriage covenant made between two unbelieving people or to an unbeliever and a believer, is non-binding before God. That once I get saved, that relationship was my old life and they quote another portion out of Corinthians, I'm a new creature. All things have passed away. All things have become new. And they love to quote that passage. Pastor, you don't count anything before I got saved in terms of my marriages. And there are men now filling pulpits on that strategy. That philosophy that says, yes, I was uh, married, I was divorced. All of that happened, though, before I got saved. You can't count that in the list of qualifications for the pastor in Timothy. And the same thing with the deacons. Don't count that stuff before I got saved. Because I'm a new person since I got saved. 
The problem is that they've abused the passages and they've ignored a lot of plain scripture. The fact is, is that yes, Corinthians does say that you, once you're a believer, are a new creature, new creation. Old things are passed away, all things have become new. But the fact is, is that that is referring to our sanctification and that is a procession. It is a process that has not come to its fulfillment. And I have proof of that. I got saved, my freckles did not fall off my face. They're still there. I got saved and my hair is still falling out. thought I'm a new creature, new creation. I'm all new. No. My flesh is still weak. It's still what it is. And I've, you know, people get saved and, and they still have those same uh, characteristics of the flesh. They still carry them along with them. Yes, it has less power. No power. It has influence, not power. But we still carry those. You know, my, my vision didn't become 2020 the day I got saved. It didn't happen. You say, well, pastor, of course those things aren't going to happen. Obviously, if you have cancer and you get saved, you might still have cancer afterwards. Certainly. If you have AIDS before you get saved, you get saved, you're probably still going to have AIDS afterwards. Why is that important? Because we go back to the principle of your marriage. Your marriage is the joining of your flesh to another. You are one flesh before God. I would contend that that applies to every marriage, not just to Christian marriages. And the instruction here in this passage is demonstrable support for that position. That God set apart marriage in every culture, has it? Every society that we set that apart as something sanctified as, as holy. All those are set apart, sanctified, holy. All same words. That this is something that every society does. Why? Because it's penetrated all because of its origination in the Garden of Eden and its importance in society. And so God sets that apart as a picture of who He is and His relationship with us, His relationship within Himself. And we see it set apart. And so God sets it apart. And he recognizes and honors and sanctifies every marriage. Not just Christian or Jewish weddings, but everyone. It is the joining of two individuals and this mystery that two become one. And so, because God has elevated the marriage commitment and covenant to such a degree, it is not just among believers. And we don't just say, well, it doesn't count that before that. Well, it does. Because you're still in your flesh. And your flesh has not been fully sanctified. That is, you have not gotten your new flesh. Now, when you get to heaven, guess what? None of you will be married. All of your bodies will return to your own self-possession, which you will then give freely to Christ in His presence. And we will bow ourselves before Him, casting our crowns there at His feet. 
So when we make that statement in our vows, till death do us part, or until, you know, I don't know if they're making vows now, until my feelings towards you change. But we make that statement, and God honors that statement. And it is shown forth here in this instruction where we are told that no one should be breaking this up. Christ's statement that Paul refers to here in Matthew and Mark and other passages says, what God has joined together, let no man put asunder. That concept, that principle, that truth um, is carried forward here by Paul in verse 10 saying, to the married I command, yet not I but the Lord. The Lord himself said this, and it is worked out in Paul's words this way, you're not to depart from your husband wives, and, and uh, husbands, you're not allowed to divorce your wives. End of discussion. I don't find any exceptions. I don't find any inference that there is any uh, uh, room to move here. It is a bold, forthright statement that says, listen, this is just not acceptable. He is not talking to a third or fourth generation group of believers. He is talking to a first generation church, which means every single person in that church got saved out of an ungodly home. Now, I know there were some Jews involved there, too. We know that they were there in Corinth who had some inkling or some uh, understanding of the Old Testament. But this is is the church of Corinth. These were all first-generation Christians. And they had the first-generation Christian problems. That coming to Christ in, in late adulthood or middle adulthood, they already had, had made all these mistakes in their life. And Paul's saying, listen, just because you married that girl and she was an unbeliever and you were an unbeliever, maybe you both got saved, doesn't say, well, you know, now that we're Christians, we don't really, I, don't, I should have never married her. What was I thinking? Well, you were thinking with something. And now, you're going to be called upon by God not to break those commitments, but to renew them. To recommit yourself to them, not as someone who is following their own passions or interests or attractions, but rather now as a child of God who understands what covenant relationships are all about and what real intimacy is and what real sacrificial love is and what real submission and humility are. And you're going to apply them to this lateral relationship with this spouse that even though you look at them now on this side of the cross and go, oh, what have I, is this going to ruin the rest of my Christian life? Only if you let it by trying to deny a commitment that you made. Walking with God isn't going to bring you into law-breaking, is it? And by the way, when you break your word, it is your own self-law. And you've made a commitment there. And you break that covenant commitment. You are violating your word. So we come to this and Paul lays it out there. It shouldn't happen. This is a command, not a suggestion. A wife is not to depart from her husband. Even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried. Now, the first thing everyone wants to do, and and our commentators are right online to uh, help us do that by cross-referencing us to the statement of Christ that says, except in the case of immorality. Of unfaithfulness to the marriage vows. 
well, you don't understand. My wife hasn't been faithful to her vows. And so by that exception clause of Christ there, um, I'm allowed to divorce her. Really? That is what it means to be a Christian? Is to be jumping on every little phrase that gives you permission to sin or would appear to? The word there, except, by the way, in the Greek is epi, uh, and uh, that's used there. Little, little Greek word, um, but it has lots of interesting possible meanings. It could not only mean except, it could also mean even. It is one way to interpret that in the dative, which that passage is in. It's not easy Greek, but it, it's workable. Boy, that changes that phrase, doesn't it? Now, instead of except for marital unfaithfulness, we have even in marital unfaithfulness. The same Greek word could be translated either way. But we find, we go to that one phrase, we ignore huge volumes of passages where God plainly and pointedly says, I hate divorce. I hate divorce. We come to passages like this where you have a command not to divorce your wife. A command not to leave your husband. Unqualified. Even. Even. When the one you're married to is a louse and an unbeliever. Even, according to Peter, if they don't obey God's word at all. He says, wives, submit to your husbands. Even if they don't obey God's word. Does that sound like there's an exception clause there? Well, they're not very godly. So I think I'm allowed to divorce them because that was... No, you haven't read Corinthians. Yes, you can go out and find a pastor that will tell you it's okay. In fact, you'll find pastors out there that have acted the same experience that you are claiming. Doesn't make it right. We lose contact with the whole ref- frame of reference and then we take it a step further and we, uh, which even is beyond the exception clause of Christ's statement there, except for marital unfaithfulness. Um, and then we uh, are going to use this passage to, believe it or not, we're going to use this passage to say it's okay to get remarried where it is nowhere allowed in Scripture. Nowhere permitted unless that remarriage is back to the original spouse without any other relationships in between do you get the impression that god takes this commitment kind of serious and is not to be entered into lightly young people older people single people in fact if you can try to avoid it that's the whole point of this chapter So we've learned that now my body isn't my own. It belongs to this person that I committed myself to that I didn't really know very well. And now that I woke up next to him, I'm like, oh, what have I done? My body belongs to him. My body belongs to her. <laughs> and you better pray the prayer, Lord, help you. He will. 
And he has by giving you this instruction. And now we come to find out that there's no way out of this. No God-glorifying way out. And that's exactly what we find. This is a life covenant. And again, a wonderful picture of our relationship with God that once we enter into this covenant relationship with God, we have that intimacy of the Holy Spirit. A wonderful thing is there's no way out. God will be faithful and keep His promises. Even when you go out and prostitute yourself to other gods. And let us understand this very carefully. I want to ask you this quick question and put it in frame. Would you want God to relate to His commitment to you the way you think of your commitment to your spouse? The way our society thinks about the relationship between a husband and wife, would you be satisfied with God having that kind of philosophy in his relationship with you. I say, but she was maritally unfaithful. And I'm going to take you to an Old Testament guy again. We had Malachi. Physical act has a purpose, not only to stem immorality, but also to provide godly offspring. But we also have another Old Testament prophet called Hosea. Let me share with you what is a godly response to marital unfaithfulness. Hosea had to live it. God made him go marry a prostitute. God commanded him to marry a prostitute. So he could wake up in the morning and say, Lord, what have you done to me? He could really say that because that's what the Lord did to him. Most of you, it's your own fault who you married. Okay? But in Hosea's situation, he was commanded, you go marry this gal and you're going to have some children with her. Great, I'm a dad. He has some really interesting names for his kids. Um, we should start resurrecting some of those kind of names, um, especially for some of your kids. They're really, no, I'm just kidding. Um, trust me, my kids are just as terrifying as yours at that age. And then his wife runs off and sleeping around, and then it goes back into prostitution. And it's heartbreaking to see it. And then God says, you go get her, and you drag her home, and you love her. Why? Because I want it to be a picture of my relationship with Israel. I went into an honest covenant. You were following after other gods, and I took you out of that idolatry, and I wedded myself to you, and we came into a covenant relationship, and now you've run back after those stupid idols that could do nothing for you. You're sacrificing your own children to them. You're destroying yourselves before them, and now I'm coming to you, and I'm going to drag you home, and I'm going to say, I am your God. Just as Hosea was to stand before his wife and say, I'm your husband. They aren't. They don't care about you. They just want to get something from you. And I'm taking you back. Not just once, but over and over again. Let me share with you. I would that the church would learn to love 
the way God loves her, that we learn to love our spouses that way. It says, even if you go into immorality, I will preserve our covenant so that you can come back here. I will show you godly love that is faithful and, (laughs) here's that tough, tough word, You know what it is, no matter what. He said, no matter what, I'm here. I'm your spouse. And that's why I prefer, even though the Greek is hard, I prefer for Christ's instruction to be translated even. For he has already given us a great example of that in Hosea and in God's relation with Israel. And aren't you glad that no matter what, no matter how much I prostitute myself after the gods of this world, no matter how much I chase after money and screw up my life for that, or chase after pleasure, or chase after uh, power, or chase after that, that I can come back and there is my God still loving me and opening His home to me and His arms to me and bringing me in with complete intimacy. This is what we ought to be picturing in our marriages. That kind of commitment, not a searching God's Word to find an excuse to get rid of that person I don't like anymore and call it Christian. Even if your spouse isn't a believer, stay with him. Stay with her. As much as it depends upon you because you are taking the role of God in that relationship in terms of the relation between between God and man, where God is always faithful and we are unfaithful, you in that marriage relation, because you are a godly person, so you claim, you take His place where you are constant, you are faithful, you are forgiving, you are ready to receive that other one. No matter what, they have transgressed against you. Pastor, I don't think I can do that then you need to be more godly. You need to pursue it, and you haven't pursued it sufficiently. Is it painful? Oh, yes, trust me, God is pained by our sin. Is there a, a distrust? Is there, is there a difficulty there doing it? Oh, yes, there is. Absolutely. But it's necessary. Powerful principle, as much as it depends upon you. It says, God has called us to live at peace. We read it in Romans chapter 12. And by the way, if you live out Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21, which we read earlier this morning, if you really live that out in front of your spouse, you will never find the word divorce cross your mouth. If you live out Romans 12, 9-21, in your marital relationship, you will not have a difficulty in this area. That's why I read it. Preferring one another, giving preference to one another. <clears throat> going, oh, you go right down through that list. And we think, oh, well, that's how I should treat other Christians. Well, it should be how you treat your spouse, brethren. And if you are consistent in doing that, 
I would contend you'll have no problems, even in a relationship with an unbeliever. Does that mean there's not going to be any pain, any, any, any difficulties, any issues? No, but they'll be outside of you and not from within you. The real danger to your marriage is not what your spouse is going to do or not do. The real danger is what's inside of your heart. Are you committed unconditionally, that is no matter what, to him or to her? And if that's in your heart, then they could go sleep around the neighborhood and your commitment will not waver. See, it's not about them and what they do, but rather about you. Now, we can always bring up exceptions and we start rattling them off. What about if he's beating me? What about if she's poisoning me? <laughs> I watch way too many Poirot movies. Um, what if, what if? Well, Paul addresses the what if. And the what if is simply if they don't want you, and they leave, it's okay. You haven't sinned against them. And I would contend that this is what we have called to do, is that when they demonstrate themselves that they don't want you in that home, that they don't want that relationship on any level, that we are free, not free from that covenant commitment we made back there, but we are free to depart from their presence. And there's a big difference between those two things. And commentators keep coming back to this passage and say, oh, you see, it, that word freedom means that, that that marriage doesn't count anymore. They really say that. Do you find that anywhere in here? No. And in fact, if you go fast forward with me a little bit, um, <clears throat> now I'm going to have a hard time finding it. Verse 39 a wife is bound by law as long as her husband lives, but if her husband dies, she's at liberty to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. When are you free? When he's dead. Not just because you've left the house. Rather, we haven't. We are to stay in that in that relationship as much as depends upon us, as much as I have control over, as much as I can do. And by the way, forgiveness is your control. You have control over who you forgive and don't forgive. That's your control. As much as it depends upon you, live at peace with them. They want you out of that house? Okay. They want you out of the house. Remember, we're not talking about a believer husband, but an unbelieving wife or husband. They want that relationship gone because they don't want to put up with your uh, Christian life in their home. Um, you are free to depart. That doesn't mean you are alleviated of your covenant relationship. Why? Because you have a goal in mind. That goal in mind is to restore that, to recover it, and that has a primary goal of seeing them come to know Christ. And jumping ship, the first chance you get, is not exactly a testimony to bring people to Christ, is it? And so we have this instruction that you are to leave if they want you out. 
We're going to look next week a little of why. But we do not find anywhere in here permission to be remarried or to void the covenant. But rather, you have permission to depart from that person. To physically be absent from the home and not fulfill the requirements of verses 2 through 5 with them. That I'm going to physically exit that home or allow them to physically leave. I'm not going to keep them from doing their will towards this relationship. And this is a very submissive position to take, either for the husband or the wife, that says, I'm going to try my darndest in this relationship to do what's right. I am going to seek as best as I can to have a peaceful home that's godly, and I'm going to submit myself and, and my body and, and everything to this one that I've committed myself to. But if they want out, and I will not wait for them to just say the word in the middle of an argument, say, oh, there he said it, I can leave. But rather than we see a genuine disinterest by them in, in fulfilling or having this relationship at all, that I reluctantly am willing to depart. The Bible says you haven't sinned there. You haven't sinned there. But let me share with you that once we look for another relationship, while that one is still alive, you are sinning against them and against yourself and against the one you were marrying. So we have that further statement that says that you should be going back to your husband or your wife as the alternative to be reconciled. She is to remain unmarried, it says in verse 11, or be reconciled. That's your choices. End of discussion. No qualifications no, but, 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 but. I hear a lot of that in my work. But, Pastor, do you think you really meant me? Yes. The question is, do you believe he's talking about you? In other words, have you placed yourself under the authority of God's word? That what he says, I'll obey. Well, there are two, one and a half principles that we're going to look at. We'll look at the next next week. I want to challenge us about the significance of the marriage commitment and the fullness of what it means. And thus, it should be very carefully entered into. And also, it should be a covenant that once entered is held in the highest esteem of all covenants we make amongst men. Let's pray. Lord God,